Hello, 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 and welcome back for what is sure to be our most popular episode ever. (laughs) We're finally giving you what you want, people. We're talking about antimicrobials. We're just going to do a big old antimicrobial newcomb episode for you. And uh, of course, I am here with my antimicrobial enthusiast friend, Amy. (laughs) Hello. I don't know if I love the title, but <laughs> I don't think it's accurate, it. actually. I purely did that just to see your face whistle up when I said that. Out so, of sarcasm. It was a sarcastic yes. title. Yes. Um, Amy, do you want to share with the audience why you visibly cringed when I gave <laughs> you that title and why we are joking right now? We are going to get to the killing of the stuff soon, people, but just bear with us for this little PSA moment in the beginning of the episode. So the ep- how do you feel about antimicrobials, Amy? Oh Tell goodness. us. Yeah, well, I think when people generally come to see us, they've bombed their gut into the oblivion most of the time. So typically people have overused and abused antimicrobials by the time they come and see us. So it's really not something... I use very often at all anymore. Um, It was funny. More recently, I had a client who I was telling her to do dysbiocide and FC-cytal. And um, I I didn't even realize that. uh, I can't remember which one, but one of them like rebranded recently. Mm, Or at least that's what I'm told. So one of them rebranded. News to me too. So I was like, oh, okay. And then I had to look at and see like how close or similar they were. Um, But again, I I just, I was like, well, I had no idea. It's been a little while since I've done an antimicrobial uh, protocol and I didn't know when they made that swap or whatever. Mm -hmm. And maybe they didn't, maybe I'm, I'm misunderstanding, but that's generally what I heard from this client. Um, But yeah, it's, it's it's a interesting dynamic because killing can have some benefit for some people if done appropriately, but because it's so kill at all costs mentality is so prominent, I think, in the functional space and sometimes in the conventional space with actual pharmaceutical antibiotics. Um, it seems to be the tool that is used heavily <laughs> and it has negative consequences when you overuse it. So while antimicrobials, I think can be helpful for some in certain situations, they have to be used with caution and they have to be used wisely. Some people don't respond at all to antimicrobials too, which is something to highlight as well. Some people are going to be more prebiotic responders Um, some people again are, might be more probiotic responders or like some combination of all three. But I I mean, I think the idea that if someone didn't respond to the first round of antimicrobials, they need two or three rounds is not necessarily the best mentality to approach antimicrobials with to begin with. So I think again, the, the skepticism I have, I think with antimicrobials, is that they're just overused and abused. And it's not to say I don't use them at times, but I try to use them wisely and I try to use them for as short of a period of time 
as is needed. Again, not to go overboard because it, it does appear the window of helpfulness is only a certain period of time. I think people that have gone overboard with antimicrobials have kind of missed that window of helpful, helpfulness and have potentially done some harm to their microbiomes. So I don't know, that's a long-winded way of saying that <laughs> they're overused and abused by a lot of people. And by the time people find us, it's like we're doing more rebuilding than clearing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think you sort of skirted around this particular topic that I want to touch on, which is, so this is an episode about antimicrobials, not necessarily antibiotics. And so we're going to focus a lot more on the things that are frankly in our scope of practice, and we're able to legally talk about it and recommend to people. Um, but the the sort of shtick that you you get from the functional or naturopathic world or the herbal world or whatever, is that these are basically like natural antibiotics. So instead of taking rifaximin or diamycin or whatever, you could take one of these things instead. And there's some truth to that. But here's the thing, people sort of, I, I get the vibe that because these are natural compounds, that intrinsically means that they're safe. Well, it's mm. not an antibiotic, so it's not bad for you, or it's not as bad. And like, we can take a buttload of oregano or a buttload of berberine and be totally fine. And I don't actually think that that's true. We have mm. at least Petri dish studies to look at and say that even the natural antimicrobials can really decimate the good microbes in the gut. And if we're now understanding that even SIBO is not so much an infection, it's more of a dysbiosis state. Yeah. We don't want to use something that is an antibiotic or really, really close to an antibiotic in its, in its um, mechanism of action. Right. Right. Because what causes dysbiosis or what makes dys dysbiosis worse? Antibiotics mm. and restricted dieting. So mm. it's, it's, yeah, it's a real pickle that the SIBO world has wedged itself into. Because I think most people believe on some level, this vibe that SIBO is an infection, and you have to kill the the bad guys and it's us versus them and you have to kill the SIBO and starve the SIBO and yada yada. And A, we don't have great quality evidence that shows that that's true. But also, um, even if you did have to trim back some of the bad guys a bit, it's probably not going to be the majority of your journey. You've got to really right. look back at what unsexy, unglamorous stuff led you to this path in the first place. Even if you have a genuine, bona fide overgrowth of E. coli, what happened to make your motility and your digestion and your immune function and your bodily health so poor that you your body would allow that to happen? And if you don't address those root causes, you could get into this place that many people find themselves in, which is where they do the antimicrobial and they feel better. Hooray! And then they go off of the antimicrobial and all their symptoms come back, whether it's immediately or a few days later, a few weeks later, a few months later, whatever. But they relapse and they think, I need more of the thing that worked. And so they do <laughs> more of the thing that worked and they feel good. And then it relapses and they get stuck in this cycle where they keep 
pounding the snot out of their microbiome and not ever really getting to the root of the root of the root of why they got the dysbiosis or the overgrowth or the candida or whatever in the first place. So I think my shtick would be a, I agree, these things are way overused and abused. So I agree, I hardly ever use antimicrobials in my practice or in FODMAP freedom either. Um, Two, I think natural does not equate to safe and without consequences, we need to really wrap our heads around that. And three, even if you do benefit from antimicrobials, and there is something bad to kill, that's only going to be like 10% of the journey for you. If that Mm -hmm. You need to really focus 90% of your effort on the root causes that allowed that overgrowth to happen in the first place. So, yeah, I, I love that you're talking about the percentage of the journey that should be antimicrobial in nature because how it seems to be marketed and how it, I think it seems to be talked about is that the killing and the clearing is 90% of the journey and it's so hard and people relapse all the time. There tends to be so much emphasis on the clearing thing. That's, that's is so, so hard tough to treat. Right. It's it's going to relapse a bunch and you just need combination therapy and a stricter right. diet. But but it's so crazy because to me, I mean the diet the the crazy restrictive diets are certainly very hard to follow. So I can see that. But taking berberine or whatever antimicrobial you're going to take for a month is easy. Like it's fairly easy to just like take some pills like a couple two three times a day like that's fairly easy um and again like i think clearance like trimming is a fairly easy thing to do the much harder things to do are the unsexy basics trying to uh mitigate the the defense mechanisms that you were mentioning that our body has to keep the microbes balanced and keep the gut functioning optimally, mm-hmm. that's much harder and could have some, um, again, and almost focusing on the rebuilding. There's like a clearance period that may be helpful for some may not, not be helpful at all for, for others. But that, like you said, should be a really minimal part of the journey. The rebuilding and isolating the variable, the variables that you need to rebuild is the core of the journey. Um, and it, again, it it reminds me too of, I I know, I know you've heard this and I can't remember if it's four R's or five R's. So like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Remove. It's such like a linear thing. And it pretty much only focuses on the microbes too. And like nothing else, you know, it's like remove, repopulate, restore, reseed. Right. It's all these R's and it, it seems like so linear and it just isn't that way i I don't know it's a protocol that's the problem right it's a protocol everybody and this drives me bonkers about even the functional medicine community is like i'm in so many of the forums and i'll tell you those people go on the the practitioners go to those forums and they say what's your best SIBO protocol what's your best candida Mm. protocol what's your best leaky gut protocol they're all craving protocols and luckily there's a handful of people most of whom i know personally who are in there with me saying, there's no such thing as a protocol. Like, you need to look at the root causes for the individual. I mean, yes, you could give the person L-glutamine or oregano or whatever, but you really need to get to the root of the root. But um, I forget how I got on that tangent exactly. But yeah, you see these protocols all the time. And it's so cookie cutter, 
even in the functional medicine space where they brag that we treat the individual, not the disease. Well, no, you kind of give everybody with leaky gut the same thing. Or you give everybody who needs a detox the same exact products. So in my mind, they're not really customizing nearly as much as they claim to be. But that's maybe a a story for another day. I think here's an interesting question to noodle on while it pops into my brain. Do you think antimicrobials, if they are needed in the first place, do you think that they should be one of the first things you do somewhere in the Mm. middle of a quote unquote protocol or towards the back end of a protocol? Or does it completely vary from person to person? Yeah, this is so fascinating. I mean, I think that everyone thinks that they should be right out the gate. (laughs) You should just clear everything out. I think that they should be used after you've covered foundational pieces, after you've tried to cover the the bases or any issues that might be driving digestive capacity issues or motility issues, supporting those key key factors. Again, a lot of the the defense mechanisms like are are there anything is there anything out of whack that's leading to dysbiosis? trying to kind of get those things more squared away um, out the gate. And this would be, I think there is nuance here depending on the symptomology of the person and like what's going on and what they've tried. But this would be how I would approach probably 95% of clients is work on diet lifestyle factors, look at mechanisms that might be breaking down that we can support. Um, And then I think from a microbiome standpoint, like those, all those factors need to be in place for the microbiome to thrive. So if like, you're just kind of clearing willy nilly and but but you're totally stressed, your diet's trash. Um, I don't want to say trash, that seems judgy, but your diet, your diet is like not great. Um, And maybe again, you're you're stuck on a restrictive diet or something. I'd much rather work on those elements of um, your your case first so that we can kind of build and strengthen those areas and just see if working on those help your symptoms. You might not need to do anything um, antimicrobial wise, but I also think like there are other microbiome supportive stuff I usually try first. So sometimes we'll try probiotics, like is that beneficial or maybe prebiotics to try to help to um, shift the environment in the gut a little bit. Um, so I usually try to proceed with something like that first and, and then see if we actually even need antimicrobials, which a lot of times we don't. So, you know, it, it really, it really, I think comes down to working on foundations, seeing if your dysbiosis can be remedied just by supporting the mechanisms that lead to a healthier, more balanced gut and doing maybe other microbial interventions that aren't going to be as harmful if, and again, not to say antimicrobials are harmful, but there's more risk, less risky options like probiotics, prebiotics. Whereas I do think some people think that those are more risky (laughs) too. In the SIBO world, they definitely do. Which is interesting. Um, but I think in reality, to me, if you took a probiotic and didn't feel great, it it's not necessarily going to have long-lasting effects. Um, so to me, probiotics, prebiotics are much lower risk to try 
than an antimicrobial, which I think is kind of the next rung of like, yeah, there are potential risks. You want to use them wisely. And then I know we're not really talking about it in this conversation, but I'd almost think of antibiotics as like the next rung. Yeah. You know, uh, in terms of, um, you know, r- levels of risk. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. I yeah. I think you worded it well. And I, I'm glad that you touched on something I was going to say, which is the nice way, the nice thing of doing it the way that we're proposing, where you start with basically everything else first, and you do the foundations, you know, sleep, stress, nutrition, movement, etc., the nice thing about starting there and then sort of polishing off the antimicrobials is a, by the time you get there, the antimicrobials are going to be that much more effective. And you're probably going to need less of them. So instead of it turning into this multi month parade of antimicrobials that seems to never end it, it can be like, oh, just three, four weeks of berberine, and then bada bing, bada boom, you're done. But oftentimes you get there and you realize that you don't need the dang antimicrobials at all anyway. And that, you know, if we can do things that spare people antibiotics or antimicrobials, that is tremendously beneficial for their microbiota in the long run, right? Like if you had a, a sinus infection or an ear infection or something going on, wouldn't you try everything in your power to get rid of that before you went and filled the prescription for antibiotics? I feel like a lot of us will do that, you know, for other infections, if we're a little bit more naturally or crunchily inclined. Mm. But then for some reason, just going out and getting a whole bucket load of berberine and oregano oil is like no big deal in the SIBO world. Yeah. And it is fascinating, too, when you work on the other things, um, how much certain things might be the primary driver of symptoms in the bacterial stuff is just, again, like a symptom of that, you know, way downstream consequence of the other stuff. Like even supporting digestive capacity, someone, again, could take HCL or enzymes and be like, whoa, my bloat's completely gone. But they thought that bacteria were the primary drivers of the bloat. Yeah. And maybe, again, the digestive support is totally changing the bacteria. But I would kind of argue uh, the, the digestive capacity boost is what's lowering the bloating. And that could be changing some microbes, too, along the way, for sure. Yeah. But, you know, the primary issue might have been digestive capacity stuff and not these, like, horrible microbes that are yeah, the residing in your gut. Yeah, the boogeyman. Yeah. So, well, go ahead. I, sorry to cut you off. I was just going to say, I think also, you know, when we look at something like stomach acid or bile, we know that those modify the microbial environment. They modify the pH. Right. Uh, bile itself has some antimicrobial pepti- uh, antimicrobial properties to it. So yeah, I, I think that probably digestive aid supplements are working on a microbial level. They're also mm-hmm. stimulating or regulating motility, which is a big cause of bloat in particular. Right. Um, that's why I love prokinetic so much. And I have all my students in FODMAP Freedom do the prokinetic speed dating. It's because they work regulating your motility and stimulating good motility clears away gas and bloat and mm. and indigestion symptoms, I mean, 90 plus percent of the time, in my experience, once you find the right one. So I think that's another factor. Mm. But yeah, it's, 
We live in an era right now where everybody in this kind of sphere that we we work in thinks that they have a bad boogeyman and they think they need to kill the bad boogeyman. But, and, and again, like for some people that might be true. I don't want to sound like a jerk saying this. It's just that that's not the whole story. It never was. It never will be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, frankly, the people who are promoting that version of the story might have some financial incentive to do so maybe affiliated with companies that make Rifaximin, for example. So just keep those sorts of things in mind. Uh, Keep in mind also, you see blogs and websites, you know, you see Allison Seebecker stuff, and you see, um, uh, what's her name? Amy Myers, you see their websites. Well, I don't know about Seebecker, but I can tell you Amy Myers' website is very intentionally designed to get you to buy her brand of supplements. So there's a financial incentive for people like that to to just hammer the snot out of antimicrobials also. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, this was maybe two years ago or maybe even more. Um, and I think there's a certain um, group of practitioners that is, when they see you not getting better, it's just they only know one avenue. <laughs> And that's to clear. And so it becomes, um, oh, you're just, like you said before, a really tough case and you need more and like higher doses. Yeah, they double down on their efforts instead of admitting maybe they're wrong. Right. Beware of that. Um, Because I do think if you've done maybe one to two, especially two rounds, if you've done two rounds of some different herbals and didn't really notice much of a difference... I don't think that you're going to miraculously do a third round and feel so much better. Um, Amy, they just haven't found the right antimicrobial. Or again, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. Yeah, they just need to take biocidin or Um, ADP or whatever. But yeah, I remember, so there's this guy locally, and I, I honestly can't remember his name, but I know I had a dietitian friend who was really upset because of, um, he he was basically he's a I I don't know what he wasn't credentialed as a dietitian but was giving dietary advice which is a big no-no in Ohio specifically Ohio is a very strict state um for like individual nutrition counseling and so like she had people that had reported this guy um kind of like more intense stuff but I was I've always kind of been of the mindset of of like, well, I'm sure there's a lot of practitioners that aren't RDs that are still give good advice. But this guy, oh my God, I saw a video that he put out and it was about SIBO. My friend sent it to me. So I'm watching it. And basically the whole shtick of this video was the reason people with SIBO can't get better is that they don't do enough antimicrobials and for long enough. It was the same stuff that we're saying. And I was just like, oh Lord, like this is crazy. Um, Cause again, it was just, oh, you just need more and higher doses. Um, Like you said, a total doubling down of the mentality that the only solution to feel better is just more antimicrobials. And again, we've seen so many people, I know you have too, that just didn't get any better from antimicrobials at all. Or got worse. Right, or worse. I've seen some people who swear they got worse. Right. Well, right. And, and they think that they're we- they think that they're like a really random weird case that they didn't get better from antimicrobials, but 
I feel like it's a super high percentage of my clients and we might have a different clientele to be fair. Our patient population might be different, but you're definitely not alone and not like a weird tough case if you never got benefit from antimicrobials. Well, and you're not doomed. That's the thing too, is when you hear one or heaven forbid more than one practitioner tell you oh, it's so weird you didn't respond to this. You're a really tough case. Or, oh, this is the worst SIBO test I've ever seen. When you hear that sort of stuff, you start to feel like there's no hope for you. You're never going to get better. You're doomed. You're hosed. You're just, you're SOL. And yeah. that's not generally the case. I, I don't think I've seen a single case where I thought that that was genuinely true. But and I've seen many cases where people came to me from other practitioners and they were told exactly that. And they came in thinking that they were hopeless. And it it drives me nuts a little bit, too, because some of those providers I know have probably only seen, like, four cases of SIBO or something, you know, five cases. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, some of these providers aren't necessarily specializing in gut stuff, and they're like, you're the worst case I've ever seen. Well, what's, like, their... Out of three. <laughs> right, out of three or out of four. Yeah. They, they don't necessarily have a high frequency of, of seeing SIBO like us, like we do. Too. Yeah. So even them saying, this is the worst I've ever seen. Well, like, out of what? Yeah. <laughs> out of out of five, out of six, you know? Yeah, it, I think that's valid. Well, and I, I also wonder sometimes how many people um, kind of track their data. And I will say I'm not perfect at this either. I have people sometimes who will ask, like, what is your success percentage? Or, yeah. you know, how many people have you successfully helped? And I'm like, oh, I don't know, man. Yeah, I don't know that either. It there's so many logistical kind of questions with that. It's like, you know, should I follow up with people at the one year mark? If I tried to reach out, would they even answer my phone call or my email? So uh, it's not to say that every clinician has to like religiously keep up with every single patient they've ever seen and check on them. But I do wonder sometimes if practitioners just don't have good awareness of this. Mm. And Again, like, are they telling like 20 different patients a year that they're weird, outrageous cases, and they're just not seeing the pattern of like, oh, I actually fail on a lot of my cases. <laughs> maybe it's right. not that maybe it's me. Um, right. But but I fear that we've strayed from the topic of antimicrobials at the risk of getting maybe a little bit soapboxy, although I could go there, don't get me wrong. Um, <laughs> I want to lead us into the actual antimicrobial conversation with a brief conversation on dosing. Mm. Uh, And again, you touched on this with his message of, oh, you just need to hammer the snot out of it more and with higher doses. Oh my gosh. Some of the doses I've seen are genuinely (laughs) terrifying. And most of them are coming from Alison Seebecker. Honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Like, so for, for example, we'll roll in with the first antimicrobial that we can talk about. uh, And that's oregano oil. It kills just about everything. That's why we use it for everything. Hippy-dippy moms will bust out the oregano oil when their kid has a first sign of strep throat, ear infection, a booger, you name it. I don't reach for oregano oil that quickly because it is very powerful. Mm. I kind of reserve that for like the top shelf, so to speak, when I really, really, really need it. So the fact that I'm mentioning this first does not mean that it's my favorite or I think that everybody should take it. Just keep that in mind. I actually use oregano very infrequently. But as a good example on the dosing comment, if I use oregano, I, being in the US where I can get ADP, the tablets, I do like those tablets. I think they work well. 
Um, they're pretty easy to take. And I would say a kind of a typical dose for ADP in my mind is like one tablet three times a day. Mm. Maybe, maybe every now and then I will go as high as two tablets three times a day for like a week or two and then bump them down. But that's mm. pretty aggressive in my mind. Right. Dr. Seebecker, I shit you not. I've seen some of her protocols. Do you know how high she goes on ADP? I don't know if I've heard ADP, but I think, doesn't she do like 600 milligrams or something? I, well, I don't know, but she does five tablets three what? times a day of ADP. And she'll do that high dose for like, I forget, I think two weeks, maybe three. And then she'll drop down to three tablets three times a day for another week or two. And then I forget if she tapers off one more time. Five tablets three times a day, Amy. Fifteen <laughs> tablets of ADP. And it's probably is, in combination with something else too, right? Yes, that's the thing. And she's one of the people who recommends that you need to do two antimicrobials at a time. So she's probably doing that with a whole buttload of berberine at the same time. Right. And I just I know her um, her like uh Allison dosage is like crazy high too. It's all all of it. Right. Yeah, every dose of everything I I have ever seen from Dr. Seebecker is astronomically insanely high. And I yeah. don't for the life of me understand. Now, well, and, and oh, I was just going to add one one other quick thing about that too. I've seen a few cases of people that have taken oregano oil especially at high doses where it really affected their their stomach if they had gastritis. I've seen that with berberine too. Yeah, with berberine as well, but definitely with oregano oil, I've I've seen that too. Um, just something to be aware of. If you have more of a gastritis presentation, you might want to be careful with some of these herbs um, or work on the gastritis first before you consider taking any herbs. Um, yeah. But yeah, I just wanted to throw that out there because I had one person in particular that was taking really crazy high doses. I think from... It might have been from Seebecker. It might have been from some some practitioner. But crazy high doses irritated their stomach. They tried to push through, and it just ended up harming them more than helping them. Um, but yeah, yeah. It, it's it can get a little crazy. It's like the it's like the wild west out there sometimes with some of these dosing. It is. Well, I have so much I could say. I think. I think that we're getting into heroics sort of stuff. Like, like, I don't know what kind of hero she, you know, wants to be or needs to be to these people. It does. It's doesn't it. It seems really grand and heroic and like, wow. And, you know, if you kill literally everything in the gut, you might feel transiently better until yeah. that dysbiosis catches up with you a bit. But yeah, it's just, it's really wild. Now um, I will say I think other oregano products probably work well also. So if you're not in this country or if you can't get ADP for some reason, I wouldn't worry about it. Um, possibly also just in America, but another brand that I've used before is North American Herb and Spice. And they have mm -hmm. little gel capsules with oregano and that way you don't have to taste the oregano quite as much in the gel caps. Those are nice. Uh, but I think even just liquid oil of oregano works perfectly well for a lot of people. It's just you kind of have to suffer through the taste of it. Right. But, you know, a, oregano, like I said, it kills damn near everything. It's effective for hydrogen-based SIBO. It's effective for, in combination, 
kind of like how you would do rifaximin plus neomycin if you had methane SIBO. You could pair oregano plus allicin or something else for if you had methane overgrowth. It's great for hydrogen sulfide. That's actually one of the few cases where I will use um, oregano is if mm-hmm. I really truly believe that somebody has hydrogen sulfide issues. It's also great for candida and viruses. So yeah. really, no matter what ails you, oregano will kill it. But here's the thing, it'll kill other stuff too. So right. that's why you really have to use it with caution. And I use it very sparingly. Right. Um, another one that is pretty popular. So we'll go through the big three first. If, if you will. So berberine, right? Because the big mm-hmm. three is oregano, berberine, and neem. That's what you see if you Google antimicrobials for SIBO. Mm-hmm. Um, I almost always use berberine more for its blood sugar modulating and anti-diabetic effect. Yeah. So it certainly has antimicrobial benefit to it, but I would choose it more based on the human being rather than the microbe. I think that it would probably be effective, especially for hydrogen SIBO. It's also berberine does work on candida as well. But if I see somebody who's like insulin resistant or diabetic or overweight or has any hint of metabolic syndrome, NAFLD, that sort of stuff, I'm going to lean a little bit more towards berberine just because you end up getting that twofer, which is really, really nice. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I I like berberine for, um, you know, things like PCOS or like insulin resistance, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I agree. Uh, matching it to the person would be more beneficial in, in a situation like that. Like what other things are potentially going on that could benefit from the antimicrobial. Nikki is raising her desk. She's raising the roof of her desk up, up, up (laughs) there. Yes. And I had to adjust the microphone minorly. Um, Yes. Well, I I wouldn't say I was raising the roof. Initially, I was just raising the desk and then raising the roof is this. Well, yeah, I, I, I don't know what I'm saying, Nikki. That's that's all right. You're delirious. Um, It's because you're so excited to talk about antimicrobials. You've been, you've been holding this in your heart, just waiting for this episode. And you're just so excited to have your I've been like rocking the little like, I don't know, antimicrobial antimicrobial baby, idea baby in my, in my, in my little, in your soul. Yeah, in my soul. Yes. Um, but um, to go back to berberine briefly, um, I think, I don't know the Allison C. Becker dose on this one. I shudder to think of what it could be. Um, I will say I usually am doing like 500 milligrams, which almost always is one capsule, two or three times a day for berberine. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's reasonable. It's going to get stuff. It's going to get stuff done, but it's not going to be harmful to most people. Um, here's a question. I, I, I'd be curious your thoughts on this too. Like if someone primarily was taking berberine for metabolic reasons, do you think there's any risk to, uh, microbially to take it long-term? Cause I've seen some people doing this and I've always yeah. wondered, I'm, I wasn't sure. I haven't been super I, confident to answer either way, you know? Yeah. I don't know if we know. I think that's the thing. Um, right. I think, it could potentially have, well, okay, the berberine that the person is taking is definitely going to have some consequence on the microbiome. But the question is, is that part of why it's effective for them? So 
if you have somebody with metabolic syndrome, diabetes, prediabetes, hypertension, etc., obesity, and they find that berberine is really great for their blood sugar, could part of that be because of a microbially induced response? Probably. So then it's like, are we kind of splitting hairs t- talking about this? I would say for something that's long longer term use, I would almost always favor something that doesn't have an antimicrobial bend to it. Mm -hmm. So for example, alpha lipoic acid is really great for diabetes, prediabetes, blood sugary stuff. But to the best of my knowledge, it's not going to be an antimicrobial. So I'd almost always favor like experimenting with something like that, or maybe getting them on that acromancia pendulum probiotic, or Mm. doing something a little bit more gentle. But I think at the end of the day, I'm not opposed to using berberine long term, especially if they scale back the dose and do like 500 milligrams once or twice a day. I certainly wouldn't recommend whatever else that Seebecker uses for a long term dosing. That's right. That's for sure. Right. I agree. 57 capsules three times a day. (laughs) No, but seriously, I will say, though, um, I've also seen weird stuff happen with berberine at high doses. And again, natural doesn't mean intrinsically without consequence or harm. Um, I don't remember his full story, but I remember working with a guy and he he thought he needed an antimicrobial. So he took a bunch of berberine and he ended up taking, I forget, I think he was taking like five capsules three times a day or something really high. And then he reacted horribly to it. It might have been gastritis type stuff, if I remember correctly. He reacted horribly to it. And then in his intake paperwork, he told me that he doesn't tolerate berberine. And he just like, he thought he didn't tolerate that antimicrobial. But then when I talked to him about it verbally, and I asked, oh, what was your experience like with berberine? And he told me the symptoms and what happened. And I was like, oh, okay, like, that is kind of crazy. What dose were you at? And he told me the dose. And I was like, damn, that's why. <laughs> did you actually say damn? Or probably, did, yes. Okay. But knowing me, I probably said damn. But, okay. you know, it's like, it's not the Berberine's fault, dude. You just way overdosed on the stuff. Right. That's all. And I remember, right. too, he was so gung-ho about it that he bought, like, three or four bottles mm. right out the gate. Which, again, like, maybe a little trigger-happy with the with the killing of stuff, right? Mm. As some of us get. Um, but then he had, like, three and a quarter, three and three quarters unused bottles of berberine and he didn't know what to do with it right it's like all right well keep it in your cupboard i don't know he he ended up having some sort of topical application that we ended up using it for and it worked really well for that so it didn't go totally to waste but um but anyway yeah so berberine again i would i would favor it more for its metabolic kind of angle and favor it for people who have that sort of issue rather than targeting the microbes but lord knows it does kill stuff too so Yeah, yeah for sure do you For wanna, sure. I feel like I've taken up all the oxygen recently. Yeah, you wanna... neem. Honestly, I don't use neem <laughs> very often. Do you use neem? Okay, not a ton. Um, the The one thing I will say about neem is that it seems like it's particularly specifically great for skin. Oh, cool. And I don't know if I've wrapped my head around all of the reasons why, but if somebody is looking for an antimicrobial. Like or topically on might... the skin or like, no, like, when like you take orally, it orally and then it helps the skin. Yeah. Taking okay. it in capsules orally seems to be really helpful for the skin. And again, it, it, is it targeting a specific microbe that's associated with acne or something? I don't know. But right. yeah, for acne type stuff and skin weirdness, it mm. seems like neem is really beneficial there. Mm. Um, 
But again, it's the big three for hydrogen SIBO in particular, neem, berberine, and oregano. That's like yeah. the trifecta. Most people will tell you combine two out of those three, and then you kind of rotate every time you do a new round of antimicrobials. So maybe you do berberine and neem the first time, and then you do neem and and oregano the next time, and then you do oregano and berberine the, the next time, and you just kind of cycle through them. Um, but that's that's kind of the the cut and dry SIBO protocol you'll find online. Now, you know, it's interesting, though. So I saw I I was taking more of a deep dive on some of these gases, these microbially Hmm. produced gases. And it was very fascinating. So hydrogen, for example, I think we maybe underappreciate this little molecule. Uh, First of all, just as a quick, quick side, then we're going to get into methane briefly. First of all, the the stuff that I was reading about recently was saying that up to 70% of the microbiome is capable of making hydrogen gas. So does that mean we have to nuke the whole thing right, to reduce right. our hydrogen production? Yeah. And the one paper was saying in particular that most of our hydrogen producers are from the Firmicutes or Bacteroidetes phyla. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, well, that those two it's phyla <laughs> make up 95% of your microbiome. Right. So do you just have to squash everything down to hell to get your hydrogen down? Because that doesn't seem like a good strategy. Mm. But yeah, I, I was very surprised that it, about 70% of the microbiome is capable of producing hydrogen on some level. And then that hydrogen is gobbled up by other organisms. So mm. the hydrogen could be gobbled up by methanogens and turned into methane. It could be gobbled up by sulfate-reducing bacteria and turned into hydrogen sulfide. Or... The th- the third other predominant pathway is that it can be gobbled up by acetogens and turned into acetate, which is a short chain fatty acid, mm. which is really, really good for you. Right. So I almost wonder too, is it really that we have an overproduction of hydrogen or do you have a deficiency in your acetogen pool and mm. your ability to make acetates like bifidobacteria, for example, right. which we know are low in people with IBS, like it all kind of makes sense. So I honestly, I'm kind of at a point where I don't know if we ever need to reduce hydrogen specifically, like I don't really target hydrogen, because I think it's more of a dysbiosis sort of thing. Right. But theoretically, (laughs) just yeah, have at it because almost anything would kill bacteria and lower it theoretically, if 70% of the microbiome is capable of producing the damn stuff. Um, But then getting into methane, Mm. Again, with the antibiotics, you do not just rifaximin, you add the metronidazole or the Mm. neomycin or whatever. Similarly, people will say in the hippy-dippy world that you could do one of the antimicrobials we just said with the addition of allicin. And, you know, I think that allicin is fine in more moderate doses. Again, I wouldn't do the Seebecker doses, but if you took like a capsule two or three times a day of Alamed or something comparable... I think that would be fine. Um, But we've talked about this on some methane episodes before. PHGG and BioGaia gastris work so well to reduce methane that I almost never feel the need to do Allison anymore. I don't know if you have had the same experience with those two products. Yeah. No, I think that – I think when we were talking about it originally, I was like, oh, that's super interesting. Um, 
because again, I was using PHGG, but I don't know if I was really monitoring the decrease in methane from PHGG. But no, that's that's wild. Um, and I think I've seen that since we were talking about that. Uh, since we've talked about that in the past, I've definitely seen that trend yeah. where it's super great for um, for lowering methane producers. Uh, yeah. I just had not really take a note of that ever <laughs> so yeah that's that's wild it yeah it, it works honestly like i don't feel the need to try to chase after methane producers necessarily yeah because um, again it works so well i forget what the numbers are but i think both of those things have been shown to reduce methane by like 20 points yeah each and then if you combine them together i mean that yeah. would treat most of the methane issues that people have um right. There's also, so similarly, because I've been on this recent deep dive, methane is interesting because I saw this, this potential for sort of a vicious cycle and this potential for a root causal sort of situation. So listen to this. So on the one hand, I found some really interesting research that suggested that uh, reduced fiber intake and increased intestinal pH because you, mm. if you right. don't eat enough fiber, you wouldn't produce enough lactic acid and short-chain fatty acids, so the pH of your gut goes way up. High pH or non-acidic pH, right. like closer to neutral. It's kind of confusing. It is. I hate talking about pH because it's so confusing for normal people to right. listen to. Right. So normally, the intestines are more acidic because you have lactic acid and short chain fatty acids that are produced. So the pH of the intestines is usually more in like the five to six kind of range. Mm-hmm. I, or I think like 5.5 to maybe 6.5 is pretty typical. And at low pH, acidic pH, where you have enough fiber intake and enough probiotic and short chain fatty acid, low pH inhibits methane production. Yeah. High pH from a loss of dietary fiber predominantly turns on methane production machinery. But then here's the weird thing. Then once you start generating a whole bunch of methane, your ability to reacidify the intestines with things like resistant starch and lactulose seems to be really compromised. So Mm. that's the funky thing. So like, okay, you, you don't eat enough fiber, high likelihood that that happens, right? Because only 5% of the American public get enough dietary fiber. So all right, the root of the root, you have a low fiber diet, and then that eventually allows methane production to be turned on. Well, then the increase in methane kind of blunts your ability to make short chain fatty acids. And then that ensures that methane production is turned on still. And then you get caught in this, this potential Mm. loop. So I do think that trying to target methane specifically can be useful from time to time. Again, if you can do it with BioGaia, Gastrus, and PHGG, phenomenal. But if you needed a bit of Allison or a bit of like a Trontil, for example, I think that that's reasonable just to get you back in a position where you could start eating carbs and fiber and prebiotics and you can get you could reacidify the terrain and then you could start taking the brakes off with the antimicrobial thing. So that's just food for thought. But I thought that that was interesting that it seems to go both ways. And I could see that 
leading people down a path and then getting them stuck in the methane Yeah, world. that's that's really interesting. It almost reminds me of H. pylori, how H. pylori is able to colonize a, a stomach environment that has low acid. So again, like a like H. pylori is going to colonize a stomach that's more basic. I guess it might not necessarily be basic, but it's going to be a higher neutral. pH, more yeah. neutral pH. But then once it establishes itself, it has enzymes that prevent acidity. Yeah. So you get caught in the state of kind of a low acid state, and that helps to that helps the H. pylori to flourish and maintain their colonization of the stomach, but it also keeps you stuck yeah. in a low stomach or a low stomach acid environment in the, the stomach. So it's similarly, I feel like with what you were describing with the methane, like once it's established, the methane producers are kind of keeping the pH higher yeah. and that's preventing the gut from really functioning optimally. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, that's super interesting. Yeah. I'd never heard that before. Yeah, that that was relatively new for me too, but um, it, it made sense because a lot of people, I think, have the experience of feeling stuck and yeah. like they've tried all the right things. And I could see some mechanisms in place why somebody would get stuck in hmm. the methane rut in particular. Um, so yeah, those are kind of my tricks up my sleeve for methane specifically. I think, I, honestly, I think I'm at a point where I think methane is a pretty simple beast to tackle. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. rolling into hydrogen sulfide tactics a bit. I feel like this is the new kid on the block. Like everybody and their brother thinks that they have hydrogen sulfide SIBO. Would you agree with that in the last handful of years? Oh, for sure. Well, and I think it was especially weird when we didn't have that, the trio smart, because it's like, well, I have bloating or whatever. And like my methane and hydrogen are better on the stool test or on the breath test, I think I just have hydrogen sulfide now. It, it became the scapegoat that no yes. one really knew how to test. And Honestly, then it, though, it's not any better now, though. Because true, now, very true, very because true. Because now we have people getting IBS, or I'm sorry, uh, Trio Smart, and the people or the practitioners are misusing or misinterpreting the test. And I've, I can't tell you how many negative Trio Smart tests I've seen where the practitioner told the person that they had hydrogen sulfide SIBO. Yeah. It's like, no, this is a this is a elevated baseline that remains elevated. <laughs> right. Or, oh, this is, you know, it peaks when you get into the colon, probably. Or, oh, mm. you have you have an invalid sample with a with a value of zero because it's an invalid sample in that it appears to shoot up because it's just going back up. It's going from zero to to whatever the number was. So I think that in my opinion, hydrogen sulfide SIBO is not nearly as common as people think it is. Mm, yeah. But that being said, it is out there. Um, I think oregano is probably my favorite thing to target this specifically. Um, another one I've had people do, and I can't say how much this affected things specifically versus everything else we were doing is mm. uh, pomegranate husk. Right. Either as a powder, you could get it as a powder and just consume it or mix it in something. I've also had some people seek out pomegranate husk tincture. Yeah. 
I don't know if one is more effective than the other, but um, I've had people use that as well. But do you have any other tidbits for? Yeah, I I mean, I think I, I like, um, I like both of those. I do think it does see, there does seem to be a, um, people that go low FODMAP and that reduce fibers, kind of like some of these other things we're saying when, when you probably, uh, you're at the pH in your colon increases and it's not as acidic as it should be it allows some of these microbes to take hold. And that seems to be the case with low FODMAP. There does seem to be some evidence that it raises Bilophila wadsworthii, um, and which is a, a hydrogen sulfide producer. Um, and so, I, again, I do think fibers seem to be pretty important for hydrogen sulfide as well. But yeah, I, I I like oregano for hydrogen sulfide a lot. Um, the pomegranate one's interesting. I think, does Jason Horlack's group, they do like a tincture. Yeah. I feel like I've had some clients that have worked with his group. And do they do a lot of the pomegranate um, tincture? I think so. I think that's actually where I learned it from was his group or from his yeah. teachings. Again, I can't yeah, I've seen say how good. much that contributed versus other factors versus I think it is really clear when I start somebody on PHDG or BioGaia and then their symptoms get better. Or if I start somebody on oregano and their symptoms get better, those are usually pretty clear to me. Pomegranate, I'm still kind of playing with it clinically. I can't say how good it is truly, but I do think that Jason's really smart and I, I kind of fallacy of authority i kind of believe what he says to some degree so i'm willing to run with it for <laughs> right, the time being right. well and i wonder too just it being so high in polyphenols as well if it's just beneficial for the microbiome as a whole um which could then in turn be helping a hydrogen sulfide or just the microbiome in general even if it isn't hydrogen sulfide yeah yeah it's it's possible um there is also a potential so like the polyphenols in pomegranate could theoretically be feeding acromantia and then acromantia modulating or controlling the mucus layer Um, so our mucus layer is a source of sulfur for sulfate reducing bacteria and the the thing about the fiber that you mentioned which is definitely true is that if you're not eating enough carbs and fiber, the microbiome is going to be starved and they are smart enough to seek food from other sources and the other source ends up being your mucus layer. So in in a situation of dietary fiber deficiency, the microbes start breaking down the mucus layer more and that's one source of sulfate for these sulfate-reducing bacteria. That's a pretty well-known thing. Um, now I think from a nutritional standpoint and and I'll share, I found a really good recent article on this topic. So, uh, it's, and I can send you the PDF if you want, I had to hunt down the PDF, but it's called impact of diet on hydrogen sulfide production implications for gut health. So that, that struck my fancy and they said 
recent studies support a positive relationship between dietary protein intake and hydrogen sulfide production. However, protein rarely exists in isolation in the diet, and dietary fiber intake could reduce hydrogen sulfide production in humans and animals, even with 30% of calories derived from protein. And they go on to say these findings suggest that increased fiber intake may reduce hydrogen sulfide production, irrespective of protein intake, enabling the ability to meet the metabolic demands of the host while supporting gut health. Hmm. How cool is that? Yeah, it's crazy. Right? Like you don't have to do, you don't have to go vegan and cut out every scrap of animal protein from your diet. You don't have to do a low protein fruititarian diet. You don't have to do anything extreme. Keep eating a moderate amount of protein, but for God's sakes, get your fiber. Right. (laughs) Kind of what it boiled down to. Yeah. No, I think it's so key. I think it's so key. I mean, for probably all these issues. um, Yes. I think for uh, all of these issues, getting enough fiber and just getting adequate nutrition is key. But And um, like you've mentioned to me, there are studies saying that people think they're getting enough fiber. I think especially I've seen it a lot in my clients where they'll say, oh, I'm good. Like I'm eating plants and stuff. But then we look at their fiber and they're like eating 15 grams or something and they might need closer to 25 or 30 grams. So um, just as a as a tip, if you're if you're really not sure, doing a little bit of tracking just to see can be really helpful, especially if you're on a limited diet. Um, you can get your fiber up if you're eating low FODMAP uh, for a period of time. Like even if you're going on a restrictive diet, still try to get that fiber in because um, it's, it's super important. Yeah, it's, it's definitely harder. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's so key. Yeah, yeah, I um, I think the numbers from the study that I've mentioned before, it's that 5% of the American public gets <laughs> enough fiber, but 67% of the American public believes they are getting enough dietary fiber, Right, which means <laughs> 62% of you are delusional. <laughs> right. You're lying to yourselves. Like, I know I'm in the 5% because I've done enough chronometer tracking over the years. I could confidently tell you, OMG, for sure, I got enough fiber. Mm. But I'm perpetually surprised how many people come and pay me the big bucks to work with them on gut stuff and they're not getting enough fiber. Right. And they just, right. they, and it's not even always the story of I don't tolerate fiber. I want more, but I can't do it. It's like they just don't know. And I'm like, yeah. Well, and, and I, um, so for my book, I'm looking at some of those numbers. And again, in some of the papers where they're describing why there's that gap, basically, they say that people just aren't educated as to what the good sources of fiber are. Yeah. And I, I hypothesize too, I mean, in the food industry, you have all these packages that are like good source of protein, and there's like five grams of protein in it. And it's like, I wouldn't necessarily say five grams in like a 200 calorie bar is necessarily like a robust amount of protein. You know what I mean? Well, and I, th- I think, is it the idea with labeling like that? Is it the idea that if you ate only that item <laughs> for the day, would you get enough protein? Right? So like, if it's, a 200, if it's a 200 calorie bar, and you got all of your calorie need from the day from only that. So if you ate 10 of them, 
you would get 50 grams of protein. And that's how they base that claim, I think. That'd is still like, be low, in my opinion. Low but adequate in like the... No, the, I think that would... I don't know. Maybe in... I still think that would even be low in conventional protein. Uh, but again, like... I don't know. To me, that's that's wild. I think, again, you have yeah. to be careful of food labeling to begin with. Um, but it's same thing. Like, something will have a good source of fiber on it. And I don't know. Is it, like, an amazing... Like, to me, if someone's going to say, like, a good source of fiber or something, I'd think it'd be, like, four or five grams per that 200 calories. Yeah. But I think, like, the food labeling world makes things really confusing because they're going to take, like, one aspect of that and blow it up and highlight it, even yeah. if it's not necessarily that great. Well, they're trying to sell it. That's the thing. Right. Whatever, right. whatever it takes to sell you the damn thing. And they've clearly done a good job because I think there's a bunch of people that think they're getting a ton of fiber. Yes. When they're probably not. I think also another factor is I think that people... Uh, okay. Okay. Erase all of your dietetic schooling from your brain. If you, especially back in the day, like 10 or 20 years ago, if you wanted to have a really healthy, like clean girl lunch, what would you eat when you go out to Cheesecake Factory? Hmm. You get a big old salad. Yeah. You get a bucket true. of leaves. And that's like, oh, I'm being so good today. And oh, this is this is so healthy for me. I'm eating a salad. Do you realize how little fiber is in freaking salad, people? Unless you're right. eating a bucket of actual kale. I've got news for you. The romaine and the iceberg barely has any fiber in mm -hmm. it. And that haunts me on a daily basis. Because we do, we do like having a bit of salad with dinner most nights. And we'll have like some romaine and some tomatoes chopped up and maybe cucumbers or carrots. And, and uh, w when I'm logging that into chronometer, I'm always laughing at how little <laughs> fiber I'm getting, like how many fiber right. points I'm getting for that stupid salad that we're eating. And we're going to do it anyway, because it's good for us in other ways. And it's tasty. We jazz it up nice. Right. It's like a ritual. But yeah, I'm just like, oh, man, people think, oh, yeah, I probably got enough that's fiber so because I got a salad today. But they don't realize that their salad is not actually that impressive. Yeah, I 100% agree. Um, I think again, some of the people that I work with that are like more so, I mean, they're slightly lower carb, but maybe they're lower carb and eating a bunch of vegetables and they're like, I'm getting so many, so much fiber, but it's similar to like what you're saying salad wise, some of the most robust sources of fiber are like fruits and apples, avocados, right, wheat. exactly. Or maybe some of the starchier vegetables that they're not eating. So like a potato or sweet potato or something. Yeah. Um, or like you said, some, some wheat or, uh, oats or something like that, where you're going to get a higher amount, but yeah, it, it's, it's really common in sort of, I think our health conscious, uh, grouping of clients to have lower fiber and again, super critical. And I think that's why it's important to focus on these basics beforehand because, you know, the fiber in general could solve the problem without you having to do any antimicrobials. Yeah. Um, now, like you said, like once you get to that point, if you're still struggling a little bit, it might make sense to do a little bit of something else. But doing it for like a, a period with an endpoint and like check-ins and not just like we're going to do six months of antimicrobials is so key. Well, and, and you touched on this earlier and I want to reiterate it as we're kind of winding down here, which is... 
If you've tried multiple rounds of antimicrobials and it hasn't done much of anything for you, to me, that builds the case that antimicrobials are not the answer for you. Right. And, you know, kind of the way I see it is if we do one round of antimicrobials and get no benefit from it, I go, hmm. If we do a second round and there's still no benefit, I'm going, hmm. <laughs> right. And I'm and I'm talking to the person at that point saying, hey, man, I don't think killing shit is really the answer here. Why don't we think about other stuff, too? Certainly, if you've already done like three rounds, oh, my God, we know the answer here. Stop right. doing the same thing and expecting a different result. And I remember, actually, I had this this patient that I worked with who now in retrospect, now that I know enough to say this, one of the most severe overt cases of health OCD that I've seen. Mm. But at the time, I didn't know that. I just thought, oh, she is really anxious. Right. And that it's just, it's anxiety. But I remember she she was just so frantic and scrambly and desperate, and she just wanted to feel better ASAP. So I kind of humored her, and we started her on some antimicrobials, and it did nothing. And mm-hmm. so she's like panic texting me in the portal, like, I don't feel any better. And oh, my God, what do I do? I just need some relief. And so at our next appointment, we talked about it. And I was like, yeah, it's it's curious that this combo didn't work for you. Because I think I did FC-Cidal and Dysbiocide. Right. And that combo genuinely does work for a lot of people. Right. So I, I was like, huh, that's kind of interesting. We could try another round. But just I kind of planted that seed of like, this might not be the answer for you. But then she kind of changed her story. And she was like, uh, I, I think that they are doing something. And I'm like, mm-hmm, okay. Right. And then we did the next round and there was basically no change. And and at that point, I'm telling her like, yeah, I really don't think this is the answer for you. The the killing of the stuff is not working for you. And again, she changed her tune and she's like, no, no, I think they're really doing I think I just, uh, um, I just, it, it was this way. And I just, she got all like panicky because right. she was so latched onto the idea of, oh, I just need to kill the SIBO and then I'm going to instantaneously feel better. And it's going to be like this magical moment in my life that she wasn't willing to let that go despite evidence and experience telling her, yeah, this is not for you. So yeah, I think, you know, if you try one round of an antimicrobial and it doesn't work, be curious, but go ahead and try a second round if you try a second antimicrobial and it does nothing, I'm really starting to think antimicrobials are not for you. And similarly, I've had people where they're convinced they have candida mm. and they do, you know, they'll do a round of caprylic acid, nothing. Then they'll do a round of uh, undesalinic acid, SF722, nothing. A round of, of I don't even know, what whatever else for, they do a bunch of different candida strategies and they don't feel better. And I feel like, I'm over here waving at them like, hey, maybe you don't have candida. Right, right. Just an idea. But again, people get so latched on to the diagnosis or the idea of the boogeyman that they can kill that sometimes they're just not willing to hear that news. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah, well, it, it's a good uh, lesson. Don't put like the 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 idea of a boogeyman on a pedestal because <laughs> like, like this is going to be the answer to all, all your problems. And I think... One thing, too, is assessing the energy that you have when you start an antimicrobial. If it feels very urgent and you're, like, skipping through all the fundamental steps, 
that's where I think people run into problems. It's it's this urgent energy. And it's, I mean, if you have gut symptoms, we all want to be better. So I'm not going to fault anyone for, for wanting, right, for wanting urgency. And I fell down rabbit holes all the time during my journey doing stupid things because I was kind of operating in an urgent manner. Um, so yeah, I, I 100% get it. But if you feel that energy where it feels almost like frantic or urgent and not kind of calm and, and calculated, I don't know if that's the right right word, but like you've kind of yeah. been like, oh, we've crossed some bases and like this makes sense. Methodical kind of, baby is right, a good word. Right, like a calm kind of like, oh yeah, this makes sense. We've already like, we've already checked some boxes um, and it makes sense to do this right now. And that's usually the conversation that I'll have with some of my clients. The client that I just recently put on, um, the, the dysbio side and like FC cytal or whatever the new combination is that that company has that combination, the conversation was like, she has done all the stuff to kind of help with motility and help with digestion. And she's seen some benefit, but there's still, kind of some symptoms and she she has some other aspects of her case like from an anatomical standpoint that you know could be at play so there's there's just different factors for her but she crossed off different bases and she felt pretty good when she did um antibiotics before so like rifaximin she did one round of rifaximin like maybe a couple years ago and felt really good after that so we kind of worked on all the basics and we got her to a certain point, but we're kind of hitting a little bit of a, a wall where it made sense to do this now. And we'll just kind of experiment. And I said, check in with me every couple of weeks. And again, by the four week point, we'll kind of decide what to do. If you were having issues or something at two weeks, you know, I'd want to know too. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was a very calm, like, we're both in a good headspace to do it. It's not frantic yeah. at all. We can kind of like accurately assess what's going on because when the hopes are so high and you've sort of put like the antimicrobials in this basket of like, Oh, it's going to feel, I'm going to feel so better so fast. Well, and you've got the blinders on. And again, so in the example of the, the woman who tried several rounds of antimicrobials, she felt no better, but she was still not willing to give that idea up. It's like you have this evidence, you have this experience that's screaming at you that this is not what you need to be doing but the blinders are on and you put this thing up at a pedestal so high and you're refusing to see anything else. Your your vision is clouded and you have well, tunnel vision set on this one thing. So you and, just don't want to get in that kind of place. And I think, you know, if you felt, and it's hard because you couldn't really necessarily diagnose her, but if you have someone that has health OCD, which I think I definitely, I mean, I have OCD to some degree, it kind of ebbs and flows. But during my journey, when I had health OCD, I think what comes over someone during that situation is, oh, but what if it's actually helping? It's the seed of doubt yeah, <laughs> that kind of comes into play. And that's scary. And like, um, you know, can be really challenging to, to deal with, especially if you're not super aware of like OCD and like how it might come over you. Yeah. And how it manifests itself. Yeah. Cause I think again, like for me, I always thought I just kind of leaned more anxious and I think anxiety and OCD tie together in in so many different ways. But um, now that I sort of have a good understanding of it, it's very easy for me to be like, Whoa, (laughs) this is very OCD right now. Like I need to kind of 
acknowledge that and sort of just move on. Um, but yeah, it, it's a, it's a skill to, to work on and it's super challenging at times. Sometimes I'm, I'm not super good at managing those types of what if scenarios, but other times I'm better. It's just kind of a practice over time, but yeah, yeah, that's what kind of came to mind when you were talking. It's the what if that well, pulls I, you in. <laughs> that's well, like, I think oh. also there's this idea of what if the next antimicrobial is it. That's true. Right. That's 100% what if true. I just haven't tried the right one yet? And if I try this new blend that I found on a Facebook ad, what if this is the one that, that mm-hmm. you know, is it? it it's, you're never going to try all the products in the world. And there's always that possibility yeah. that there's like, one holy grail out there that you just haven't tried yet. Yeah, it's like, what if so I, I think, never get better <laughs> until I try this Atran deal or exactly, whatever it is? Exactly, exactly. I just yeah. haven't found the right product yet. Right. So yeah, I I think that um, I, I want to close this out with this because I know you have an appointment coming up. So we've got to wrap up here. But I will close this with this. Um, personally, in my group coaching program, I put antimicrobials at the dead end <laughs> of the course. I force my students to go through all the other shit first in modules mm. 0 through 11. And then week 12, module 12, is where I say, okay, fine. If you really think you need to kill stuff, here you go. And I give them... a a bit of a different framework of how to look at that and how to treat that. Now, what I tell my students all throughout FODMAP Freedom is the goal of the first 11 modules is to build you a SIBO-proof body. Right. Then by the time we get to the antimicrobial kind of stuff, like I said, you either will find that you don't need to do antimicrobials for very long you don't need a very high dose of the stuff. It is that much more effective and you'll feel that much better when you do shave off the little bit of bad stuff or you get there and you realize you actually don't need that content after all. So I hope that you guys have a similar experience with this episode. Hopefully we've opened some eyes and opened some hearts to this. Maybe you don't need the antimicrobials we talked about here today. If you do, hopefully we gave you the tools to figure that out and use these things because they can be helpful. But remember, go ahead and look at those unsexy basics and, uh, you know, just build yourself a healthy SIBO-proof, dysbiosis-proof body. Let the rest of it fall into place and maybe shave off the bad guys a little bit at the tail end of your journey. But as always, we will see you right here in the next episode of the IBS Freedom Podcast. Toodaloo.